Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Hey, uh, have you ever, you ever like wanted to tell somebody something that was so exciting and you began to tell them and all you saw on their face was skepticism? Like you're so excited about it, you know it, you believe it, but as you're talking about it, you can see like this guy on the screen. Like, man, I just, I don't know about that. My grandmother, uh, bless her heart, lived almost 102 years old. And uh, in 1969, when men first stepped on the moon, I was 16, 17 years old. I remember going over to her house and, and telling her, we called her Mammy, and I said, Mammy, isn't it awesome? We've sent people to the moon. And she looked at me, she says, there ain't no way. <laughs> I said, no, come on, Grandma. I said, they did. They said, I mean, we've, people set foot on the moon. She goes, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> she says, we don't want the Soviets to get ahead of us. We're afraid they're going to get ahead of us. That was Hollywood. You can't go to the moon. Timmy, you know that. You're smarter than that. You can't go to the moon. Man can't go to the moon. And I said, yeah, but it's on television. She goes, mm. <laughs> I mean, she saw the same thing I saw. I said, they got these rocks. She went, mm. She saw the rocks. I said, you saw the splashdown. I mean, she saw that on television. I saw that on television. I read the reports. We talked about it in school. She had the same information I had, but yet she drew a whole different conclusion. And her conclusion was total doubt. And until the day she died, 101 and a half years old, she still would not believe it. There is no way you can put somebody on the moon. But this same line of thinking, this same line of doubt and skepticism is definitely prevalent whenever we begin to talk with people about God. When we begin to share our faith, when we begin to talk about uh, how, what it's done for us, you will get into some conversations that are just very challenging. I sent out on my Facebook page back here a month or so ago a little survey and I said, how about tell me some of the objections to faith that you get when you talk to people? And you guys were really good about getting back to me. And, of course, one of them was there is no proof that God exists. You cannot prove to me that God exists. And the big one that comes up all the time is if God is so loving and if he does exist, why do good people suffer? Why is there so much pain in the world? We're going to look at, look at that in a couple of weeks. Another one that came out of the Facebook page survey was that the stories in the Bible are just too bizarre to believe. They're just, they're out there, Tim. There's no way I could put any confidence in this book. Uh, Some of the others were that, you know, how can Christians believe they're the only ones that are going to get to heaven? That, That whole statement is loaded with a lot of stuff. But why are they so elite Why do they think they're the ones? They're the only ones. How about all the good people that are Buddhist and Muslim 
And uh, how about them? Or even atheists and agnostics that are good people. What about them? I mean, they mean well. So we're doing this series called I Doubt It. We're going to be in it probably for at least a month. There is so much uh, to look at, and I'm hoping that we'll dig our roots in deeper and that you guys, uh, when you have conversations with people, you'll have a little bit of information to take with you. I want to encourage you, too, to bring your friends to this, your skeptical friends, your atheist friends, your agnostic friends, your anti-Christian friends. Those who don't like the church, those who hate the church, those who whatever, invite them. We will treat them like gold. We will. We will love them. We will serve them. They're welcome here. Bring them with you and, uh, and let them come in and listen to this. And then you guys take them to church. I mean, take them to lunch afterward. Pick up the bill. Take them to lunch. Leave a good tip. And, uh, and take these questions that I put in the handout and have a dialogue with your friends that are searching or maybe even so skeptical. Take it and have conversation. When it comes to atheists and agnostics, you guys know the difference, right? An atheist doesn't believe in any God, period. An agnostic is like leaving his, he's leaving all options open. He's like, well, I don't believe, you know, really believe that there's a God, but there might be, but if there is, you really can't know it. So that's, you know, that's kind of wishy-washy, isn't it? Like, you know, agnostic. Uh, The statistics are all over the place as far as how many atheists and agnostics we have, you know, here in America. Some of them are as low as, like, there's only 2.4% atheists and maybe 3.3% agnostics. Uh, But here's what's interesting in this particular stat that I read. 6% of those pray. Of the atheists and agnostics, they pray. I thought that was really interesting. There was a recent survey, though, that included a group of people called the nuns. And I don't mean the N-U-N-S, that kind of nuns. But the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. That is people who do not consider themselves affiliated with any church denomination, with any faith at all. But they, they might be, they believe in something possibly. So when you lump all of the nuns in with the agnostics and the atheists, the percentage grows to well over 40% all of a sudden. And it does seem like our culture is doing a bit of a slide into skepticism and to I doubt it. And so I think it's important for us to take a look at this. I love questions. I love people that challenge things. I love the fact that you don't swallow things hook, line, and sinker, but you take a good long look at it and you do your homework and you make an informed decision. Uh, I, I tell you here at the Vineyard all the time, don't check your brain at the door. When you come in, Keep your brain intact. Think, ask questions, think, deliberate, follow through with what I'm saying, check it out. You know, you can't go wrong doing that. Do that. Be a thinking church. To be a doubter in the Latin, uh, the Latin word means two, having, like being torn between two. Uh, the Chinese had a, have a kind of a metaphor for doubt, and that is that it's like you have one foot in one boat and one foot in another one. And so the boats are continually moving around, and so you are, you're doubting one side or the other. I think that's a pretty good definition. It's a, it's a nice metaphor of where you are. One minute you may be leaning this way, the next minute you may be leaning that way. Uh, I think the Scripture defines it more like being of two minds. You can't really decide. Uh, Elijah in the Old Testament, when he was talking about doubt and he was confronting the Israelites... He said this, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? How long? And over in the New Testament, Jesus had a situation where he met up with a father who was kind of struggling 
with this issue too. In Mark 9 and verse 14, you don't have to turn over there. I'll just kind of paraphrase it for you and read part of it. This father had a son who was obviously affected by like a demonic spirit, an evil spirit. And this spirit was causing his son to to have seizures and uh, he was actually, the father came to Jesus and said, this spirit tries to kill my son. I mean, it throws him into the fire at times and, and throw him up against the wall. And, and Jesus, please, please, can you do something for my son? I mean, it's, the plea is really heartbreaking because uh, he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And I like the fact that it said us. In other words, I'm hurting with my son. Have mercy on us, God. Help my son. And in verse 23, Jesus responds like this. He says, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And in verse 24, immediately the, boy, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> it's like, you ever been like that? Oh, I believe, I believe. I don't believe, I don't believe. I believe, help my unbelief, Lord. I think this guy, this guy in Mark is kind of exemplary of us many times. And we want faith, we want to have it, we want to have our, you know, our confidence in what God says, but there are times when we just like, God, please, I just don't have it. I got questions. I don't understand some things. I don't understand my child. I don't understand this. I don't know if you can do this or not, but I wish you could. I hope you can. But please, and I found it super awesome that when God said, with faith all things are possible, but at the same time, the father obviously didn't have that faith and Jesus still touched him. Jesus still touched that child, still healed him. Tim Keller, in a very wonderful book called The Reason for God, if you haven't read it, uh, I'm hoping to get some copies in here. Uh, The Reason for God, it's been out a few years. I've given away... Every time I buy a copy and read it, I end up giving it to some friend of mine that's a skeptic. And uh, so I had to go out and buy another one this week and read it again. Uh, but he's got a quote in his book, That's the Reason for God, by Tim Keller, pastor in New York City. Uh, Tim says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Amen to that. And to set this up today, I want to, before I mention a few things that breed doubt in us, and then in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at some of these issues like, if God is so good and He loves us so much, why is there so much pain? We'll take a look at that. We'll look at science and God. We'll take a look at some of that as well. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things here first, though, and you have a fill-in in your handout if you want to track along with me. You have a pen as well, and uh, it may help you just stay on, on task with me here. And the first fill-in there is this, and I think this is very important, and I hope this takes a little of the pressure off this morning. There is no such thing as absolute certainty. There is no such thing as absolute certainty. I don't know why people who are opposed to Christianity and opposed to faith in Christ believe that you have to have that in order to believe because 
We make decisions every day in our life, life-threatening decisions, where we put things on the line, our children, our business, our own lives on the line, and we do not have absolute certainty about them. Have you ever got on an airplane? You ever got on a plane? I mean, I, uh, I asked some of the soldiers that were, are in our church, I said, you know, all the courageous things that you guys did in battle, were you ever scared? And one of our members said, if you aren't scared, you need to check your pulse. But you know what? That fear did not stop them from being courageous. They stepped into it, and they did what they knew to do based on what they had to work with. They made a decision. The presence of fear didn't stop these men from acting, behaving in a courageous way. They behaved as if they knew they would survive. They went in and they did it and they took care of business. Was there absolute certainty? If you had asked them before, they would have gone, no. No. But yet they made a decision, a life-threatening decision to step into it. They kept their fears under control and they moved forward in spite of the fear. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we get a little bit of a view of how we have to deal with life here. When Paul said, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We see through a bit of a haze right now, so all of this absolute certainty is not possible because there's a bit of a haze in life. We see situations and we want to step into them. We make decisions. We can't see completely what the outcome is going to be, but we can see enough. We can see enough. So the person who believes is not someone who doesn't ask questions, who never has doubts, but they're not controlled by their doubts. They're able to move forward in faith and live in accordance with faith. Now, maybe you're thinking, gosh, Tim, I can't be absolutely certain what in the world. I mean, what, how are we going to do this thing? Well, like I said, you do a lot of things without absolute certainty. Matter of fact, I'll bet you 99.99, if not 100% of your life and the decisions you will make in life are made without absolute certainty. Your second feeling is this. While there may not be absolute certainty, there is such a thing as actionable intelligence. There is such a thing as actionable intelligence. Aristotle taught us that we can only prove things according to the nature of the thing to be proved. You have to look at it and look at the effects of what you're wanting to believe in or believe you're going to take the evidence in and put stock in it, trust it. So you look at the effects of that thing. You get on a plane. When you walk onto that plane and you board that plane, do you with absolute certainty know without any doubt at all, can you prove that that pilot knows what he's doing? Can you take a mathematical formula and plug it in right there at that moment in time and say, look, 2 plus 2 equals 4. He, is gonna, he knows how to take this plane off the runway and he knows how to land it. Do you know that? Many times you don't even know there's a pilot up there. It could be Sonny from iRobot. You don't know. You don't know. I mean, now, you know, now the, you know, sometimes he's standing outside greeting you when you leave or whatever, but you don't know. But yet, what do we do? We make a decision that puts our life on the line, puts our children on the line, puts the future on the line. We go and we sit in a seat and we get in this aluminum tube and we are thrown across the universe. <laughs> 
Why? Because it happens over and over and over again. There is an effect. There is something you can see. Hey, most of the time, the vast most of the time, now you're going, I ain't flying ever again, man. You got to think about that when you go on the plane. We got to fly here in a few months, and I'm thinking, I'm gonna, can I see your credentials, please? How many times have you done this? You know, give me some other passengers who've made it with you. But even that's not absolute certainty, is it? It's not. It's not, but you put your life on the line. You make big decisions. You get in a car and you go down 31 at 75 miles an hour. And you get beside some, you shouldn't, but you get beside someone. You get by, by someone you don't know three feet away. You don't know if that's a maniac over there. You don't know. He doesn't know if you're a maniac. He doesn't know if you're going to plow into him at any minute, but yet you put yourself on the line. You put your life on the line. Why? Because we have actionable intelligence that it's relatively safe to get out there and drive, right? Why don't we do that with God, with a belief in God? Why don't we use the same brain cells we have when we approach this thing called faith? Why don't we take the evidence in and think and go, gosh, there's plenty of actionable intelligence out there for me to make a rational, reasonable decision about who Christ was and what God has called me to do. Why don't we do the same thing? There's enough. How many of you have been to the doctor? We've got doctors here, wonderful doctors today. You know, how many of you let doctors cut on you? Yeah. <laughs> Put you to sleep. Yeah, do you know they're going to bring you back out? Do you know? I mean, is there a mathematical equation that says, absolutely, we'll go in. We don't know. We don't ever look at the papers on the wall. We haven't verified them. We don't know. We go in. We lay down. When they put us to sleep, they take the scalpel out, and they begin to cut. All the time, we haven't given it a thought. Are you completely, absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of doubt with every bit of proof that this person will get you through that? Do you know that? But yet you put yourself, your whole life, on that table at that time for that person. There are very few things in life that you can prove with absolute certainty. Even love. I mean, love is something we, you know, we, can you show me love? Can you put it right here? Can you handle it? Can you describe it? But yet we change our whole lives for love. We'll change location, we'll change profession, we'll, in our profession, we'll do whatever for love. I can't see it, but I've had enough actionable intelligence to know. I mean, when my wife and I, you know, when we were dating many, many years ago, and uh, I had enough information, I'm not sure about her, but I had enough information that she loved me. That she loved me and she cared about me enough so that I was willing to put my life on the line. And, and she did too. There was enough actionable intelligence for us to take a step for the rest of our lives. Now, was there absolute certainty in that? After 41 years of marriage, my certainty or my belief in the effect of that love has only grown because I've, for 41 years I've seen the effects of that love. She's been faithful she loves me. She cares for me. We love each other. We're doing good. But when I sit down to that gluten-free meal tonight, <laughs> is there absolute certainty there is no poison in that meal? Can I be absolutely 100% certain but yet I will eat the food. Why? Because I got 41 years 
of trusting that. Why don't we do the same with God? There's no such thing as absolute certainty, but there is plenty of, in, of information, of verifiable and actionable intelligence. If you've got your Bibles, you turn over to Romans 1, verse 18. I want to read a few scripture verses here. And uh, this scripture passage uh, by Paul has been written to a group of Christians in, a, in Rome. The church in Rome is made up of Jewish believers as well as uh, Gentile, non-Jewish, Roman uh, believers. Some believe that uh, there might have been like five very large house churches in Rome. And so when they would bring, they would bring them all together and they would be apart at times. Paul had been wanting to get to this church and to be able to share with them, but he, he couldn't do it. So he's writing this letter from Corinth. He's sending it to them. He's telling them, hey, you know, I really want to be with you guys. But I found it interesting that the people he's writing this book to, most of them probably were Gentiles. They came out of a pagan lifestyle, much like ours. I mean, our culture, I don't mean this derogatory at all, but it's a pagan culture. I, don't, I mean, I'm, I was a pagan. I was. I mean, I came out of a pagan culture. That's, God got me out of the middle of a very hedonistic pagan culture. That's where he got me. I came into this thing not knowing anything about what it means to follow Christ. And I believe a lot of these guys in this particular church were the same way. So in verse 18, the first chapter of Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, but God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Lord, we ask you to bless your word this morning. Help our next few minutes together. Uh, breathe life on your word, on our discussion. God, we open our hearts to you. We open our minds to you. I ask for your help today, God, as I do believe, Lord, this is a reasonable faith. This is a reasonable reaction to come to you, to turn our lives over to you. It's a reasonable reaction to an awesome God. And so, Lord, I pray for our understanding today, our hearts and our heads. You'd speak to us, and that, Lord, you would show us that there is plenty of evidence, Lord, many clues that this thing we call following you is real, and is available to every person, Lord. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in your doubt, uh, in your next four fill-ins here, I've got four doubt breeders. This is going to set us up for this whole series as we look at some of the topics for doubting faith. And there are certain things that cause us to doubt. They will put us in a position of doubting this thing. And so maybe you've been affected by one of these four. I dare say all of us have been affected by all four of these this morning. So I want to point these out. Uh, and the first one is this. First doubt breeder is self-interest. Self-interest. Notice in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men 
who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I, have you found out that God can really cramp your style yet? Have you found that? I mean, have you found that it gets a little uncomfortable sometimes when you begin to walk with God and God starts pointing things out? I don't know about you. When I first became a Christian, it was like six months. Things were awesome. I thought I was perfect. I mean, I didn't know squat. Just married, in college. I thought I was the perfect husband, the perfect Christian, the perfect everything. I knew nothing. But in about six months, I began to realize, you know what? I'm a pretty selfish pig. And it's only deepened in the last 40 years. I mean, I find out how much, how, how much self-interest is in my life. Paul is pointing out that it suppresses the truth when our sinful side, when that selfish side of us begins to show itself. You know, I don't like it when my private interests bump up against God's design. When God has a will, when He has a design, when He has a plan... When he has a scheme, he has a way of life, when he has a way of doing things, a way for me to love my wife, to love my children, to love my church, to be a friend. When that bumps up against my own self-interest, it gets uncomfortable. And at times, some of us will go, well, you know what? I don't know if I believe this or not because I don't like this feeling. I use the term being bent, that we come into this thing like we're bent over from sin, we're bent over from our old life, but we have gotten used to doing life this way. When we reach for something, we're used to being at this level. And Jesus comes along into our life and he begins to conform us, it says, to his image. So he begins to straighten us out. And it hurts at times. Things change. Suddenly what we thought life should be like is beginning to look a little different. Our own self-interest. Suddenly we have, we have pet sins. We have pet personality little peeves and things we want to hold on to and God begins to press into us. And then if we don't embrace that uncomfortableness, if we don't embrace that tension, then what we'll do is, I doubt it. I don't think I really had, you know, I don't, I don't think I really had an experience with God. I don't think you really can know God through Christ. No, I think I just had an emotional moment because I'm starting to get cramped. My style's getting cramped. And so we begin to doubt Some of you know who Aldous Huxley was. Uh, If you've been in college, you definitely know who he is. Wrote A Brave New World. I mean, it was the rave back in the 60s. Everybody was reading it. Uh, You know, atheist, philosopher, brilliant man. But I think Huxley said this quite well. Uh, Here's a quote from him. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do what he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself... The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Well, at least he's honest. At least he's honest. What he's saying is, you know what? If, if I believe there's some meaning to this life, then I've got to change the way I do life. So I don't want to change the way I'm doing life. I want to be liberated in my politics. I want to be liberated in my sexual life. I want to be liberated in every way, so I am just going to consider everything meaningless. And that way I won't be accountable to it. That self-interest 
it can cause doubt to pop up in us and, and suddenly push us back because we become uncomfortable. I just want to say to you vineyard people, the people in this church, I hope this place is a place where you can struggle with God's will and your will with friends. I hope this is a place where you can find friendship and we can all do this thing together to try to let God straighten us up into such a way that it is a joy to follow Jesus together. That no one is excluded from that journey. So if you're uncomfortable and you're bent down and your self-interest is bumping up against the reality of God, you will say, you know what, Tim, I don't like what this feels like right now because this may cost me something. And believe me, I understand that. This may cost me something. But if you guys will walk with me, I want God for my life. And whatever God wants for this in this area of my life, I am willing to struggle through this to see that God's will is done in my life. That's the church I want. That's the church I want to be a part of. That's the friends I want walking with me. Do the same thing. But that self-interest can so push us back that it creates doubt in us. And secondly, look in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. And your second fill-in, another doubt breeder is ungratefulness. With self-interest and now ungratefulness. If we are an ungrateful people... It sets us up for being doubters. How many of you guys have counted your blessings lately? How many of you have sat down and made a little list? Have you ever noticed how your whole attitude changes, your perspective? I mean, your negativity suddenly goes. I mean, Paul says here that they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. When we quit thanking God for the things that he's done in our life, it opens us up to skepticism, to doubt. I mean, not appreciating those moments of grace in our life sets us up. Hosea 13, 6. God says, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? Why do you have, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? An ungrateful heart puts us in a position of just doubting God. I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if God cares about me. Have you recounted any blessings? Has God done anything good in your life? You've got a pen. You've got a piece of paper right now. Why don't you write down three things right now that you're grateful for? Recall three things. Three things. Three things. Got them? Well, let's just let's thank the Lord for them. Just, just do it right there under your breath if you want, ever how. Just say, God, thank you for... Thank you for my family. Thank you for life. Thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you. I have food. I have shelter. I have friends. I have a Savior. Thank you, Lord, I have today. 
My life may be a wreck before today, but today I have today, God. You have given me this moment right now, and things can be different from this day forward. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Things change when we become grateful. Our hearts change. Our faith increases. But when we're ungrateful, when we're unthankful, we're not able to look at the great things God has done for us, then our heart kind of turns away and begins to doubt the goodness of God. So there's self-interest. There's a lack of gratefulness. And your third one, third doubt breeder is lack of foundation. A lack of foundation. In 1 Peter three fifteen through 16, we read, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That means having a foundation so that you can answer questions and you can talk to people who have questions about your faith. Then look what he says. How to do it? But do this with gentleness and respect. Well, the Bible says it. What's that, what's that saying? I hate cliches. But uh, what's, the Bible said it, that settles it. Is that, is that the bumper sticker? Um, the Bible said it, that settles it. Well, that's no discussion. Gentleness. Respect for the other person. But able to give a heartfelt and reasonable response for why you believe. That's a foundation. That's a foundation in your life so that uh, when you get pushed up against, you can still stand firm. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I don't know why we get so nervous when people question our faith. I, I don't get that with Christians. You know, I watch it on television. I see it. I hear it on the radio. People get mad. People question, well, you just, you know, then... Christian people get angry and they start spouting off cliches and euphemisms and, you know, relegating people to the burning fires of hell and plagues. I mean, I was one time in a meeting many years ago and with a, some public officials over a certain issue and uh, it wasn't going the way that I'd prayed for, but I happened to bring somebody with me that was with me and whenever I was, it was obvious that it wasn't going to go the way that we wanted to and our appealing to faith was not happening. This person stood up and said, may the fires of hell send you. You know, I went, well, we lost that one, you know, right? We're not going to be having, not going to be any more discussions with this group anymore. Uh, you know, and even when we got in the uh, elevator to go down from the building, you know, this person with me was still prophesying like plagues of locusts and their pants and things. You know, I mean, it was like, I was like, wow, you know, just not the way I really wanted it to go. You know, lack of a foundation. When we get shoved a little bit, you'll see how deep your foundation is. And if it's not deep enough, then doubts begin to occur. You know, we can't give a reason uh, for why we believe. Uh, we need a foundation on surfboards, to give you an example. On surfboards, we have a fin on a surfboard, right? That fin anchors us to the water. That's what keeps us from spinning out. If you got the right fin in, you can surf well. You can get down the line. You can really enjoy life. If you don't have a foundation, if you don't have something to sink into that water and hold you correctly, you're just going to spin out. Every time any wave hits you, anybody comes along, you are not going to enjoy the ride. A foundation is very 
important for us, especially when it comes to doubts that we have. And how about not only that, when people ask you questions, but you're a young person. You've been in your home church your whole life. You were raised by good Christian parents. You go to the Bible study. You go to the uh, meetings, and you're with your friends. You've been in awesome meetings where God's presence has been just palpable. I mean, you could feel it. You could taste it. All your friends love God. You love God. Then you turn 18, 19, and you go off to a liberal arts college. Now you're exposed to a whole other group of people. Now you have new friends who doubt things. Now you have professors whose job it is to doubt everything. And so there you are alone out of your Christian ghetto, and now you are out in front into the, you know, the world, and suddenly the waves are hitting on you, and your friends are smashing up against you with doubt upon doubt, and whether your foundation is deep or not will become apparent. Because then you will start to slip and you will start to slide and you'll wonder, what do I believe? Why did I believe? Did I believe because my parents told me it was the truth? Now I'm not so sure. Now that can be a wonderful moment if you navigate those waters well. My first, you know, my third year in college, I had this New Testament. Uh, I was so excited. My first Bible class, you know, because I'd just become a Christian. I'd been engineering, engineering, engineering. And now it was... Bible class, you know, and so I'm going in, I was so excited, I've been a Christian for three months, and I get into this class with 120 other students, and Dr. Witherspoon, in a green and white diagonal three-piece suit, I should have known then, stands up and begins to teach us how the Bible is a book of myths, and I mean, I'm three months a Christian, don't know anything, and I'm listening to this and going, boy, what? And you know, I was getting shoved around a little bit. I'd go back to tell Karen. Karen was so solid in the faith. She was my anchor, but she was like, ah, you know, some dip. Uh, yeah, what does he know? He's got more intelligence than he does good sense or whatever. And I went back to class, and he kept, kept hammering. He hated Paul. He hated the Apostle Paul. I mean, he did everything he could to just dismantle anything he said in the Scripture. And we had this paper we had to write, a defense of our faith. I mean, I'm three months walking with God. I mean, what am I? You could give an oral, you know, response, or you could write a paper. I wrote a paper. I was fairly shy then. And, but we had this young African-American girl. I will never forget it. I don't remember her name. But she says, I want to do, a, I want to do the oral. And so uh, when it came time, we turned our papers in, and she stood up in that class, and she began to expound on the reality of Jesus Christ, probably a 19-year-old young girl. And she started preaching about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Dr. Witherspoon leaned back and crossed his arms, you know, and he let her go. She got up out of her chair in this little mini auditorium, walked down to the front, (laughs) began to preach. And I felt my faith just begin to grow. But you know what else it did? It caused me to go back to this and do a lot of studying. To go back and say, do I really believe what I say I believe? Your foundations will get exposed when you get pulled out of your circle and then you get challenged. And those are wonderful times, great times. And my prayer is that this series is going to help us dig our foundations in so we can give a reasonable a reasonable explanation for why we believe. So there's our self-interest that are, create doubts. There's ungratefulness. There's a lack of foundation. And your last one here is another thing that creates doubt is inadequate examples we didn't have good examples 
of what it means to follow Christ. Maybe you're like, you know, I like, like, who was it, Gandhi, that said, I don't like your Jesus, but I don't like your followers. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be that Christian. You don't want to be that Christian, that obnoxious Christian. You don't want to be that one. Um, you know, I wish I could tell you that if you started following Jesus, that you automatically become a nice person, but, yeah, that's not a guarantee. It's not. Now, you should. I mean, that's part of that bending, right? We should be kind to people, gentle, like we read earlier. We should, and that's part of the bending that God does. But if we haven't had any adequate examples of what it means to follow Jesus, then doubt suddenly you know, pops into our mind, and we start wondering, do, we, do I really believe this? I mean, where did this come from? Why do, why do I even think that Jesus is who he said he was? Why am I trying to live this way? I mean, why am I, do, why am I doing this? But let me ask you this question, too. If that's your main doubt, like, look at these Christians. Man, I don't want to be one of these people. Are you willing to stake everything on that little bit of actionable intelligence? Are you willing to look at a poor representation of what it means to be a Christ follower and say that's enough for me to discount all the rest of the information all the rest of the intelligence all the rest of the proof of the clues are you willing to do that just on one, two, three, four people that just maybe aren't quite walking behind Christ the way they should yet are you willing to do that or are you willing to stick out and go you know what there's got to be some people out there trying to live this thing out the right way Here's a, here's a challenge for you. Why don't you become the Christian that you wish you had the example of? Why don't you say that? You know what? I didn't have it. And I haven't had a good example. But I'm going to be one. I'm going to be a good example so that others can see that Christ has made a difference in my life. Don't put all of your eggs in that basket because you haven't had good examples. There are good examples out there. But everybody's human. I mean, people mess up, but God is bending us. Some of us are still bent this way, some this way, some this way. God is continually working on us to conform us into His image. Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It's reasonable. And we're going to see that in the weeks ahead, that this is not a fairy tale or some myth or some legend that people make up It is a reasonable response to a reasonable God who reached out to show himself to you. And maybe today, maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what, I've seen enough. I've got enough actionable intelligence, Tim. I'm willing to take that step now and say, I want to go with you guys at the vineyard. I want to step across the line. I want to respond. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.